0: we're back. Upon returning from Africa, I set aside some materials that I knew we wanted to talk about in future shows. Uh, High on the list was the um, the firing, the letting go of Brian Stelter at CNN. We thought this so-called unbiased makeover should um, be talked about, and we probably have more to say about it in the future, I think. And the other thing I thought we had to talk about was this uh, Let's start with an editorial in the Washington Post about how it is that the super-rich dominate our politics here in America. I know, big surprise. But to quote from the editorial, a conservative activist who crusaded, quote, with startling success, unquote, to overturn Roe v. Wade, was just rewarded with a $1.6 billion, yeah, with a B, billion dollar political contribution. Thanks to a tip the Washington Post learned that electronics mogul Barry Said last year made a massive dark money contribution, which was 100% of the shares of his company Trip Light, to a group called Marble Freedom Trust. That group is headed by Leonard Leo, a longtime leader of the Federalist Society and primary architect of the movement to reshape America's judiciary with conservative judges and that succeeded when they overturned Roe v. Wade. Sade's advocacy donation, the largest in history, was made possible by the 2010 Supreme Court decision Citizens United, which allowed for unlimited political spending by outside groups. Under campaign laws, non-profit groups, like Leo's, which are as political as they come, can register as, quote, social welfare organizations, unquote, and then not disclose their donors. Leonard Leo, for his part, defended the donation, saying it is high time for the conservative movement to be among the ranks of George Soros and other liberal donors. But noted the post, when a handful of billionaires can so heavily shape our politics, neither side should be proud. Of course, we have to laugh at the idea that George Soros is the main guy influencing American politics. Yeah, he has favored liberal causes. Yeah, he is a billionaire. But yeah, he is swamped by the other side. Writing about this in the Week magazine, in this case they were repeating what the New York Times had to say, Barry Sade, who is 90, donated all of his shares of the Chicago-based electronics equipment maker, Triplite, to Leo's group, which then collected the 10-figure sum that an Irish conglomerate paid to acquire Sade's company. By delivering the donation in that way, they reportedly avoided $400 million in taxes. It should be noted that Leonard Leo, co-chair of the Federalist Society, which, as we know, is a pipeline for conservative judicial picks, advised former President Trump on his Supreme Court picks, the three conservatives that have now changed American society. Leo is a conservative Catholic. He has led battles over abortion, voting rights, and climate change, all of them from the conservative perspective. You know, abortion rights should be curtailed, voting rights should be limited, and climate change is all a big hoax. Referring to the $1.65 billion donation from Barry Sade, Leo said that that would enable conservatives to go toe-to-toe in the fight to defend our Constitution and its ideals. And yes, to forward promote, we are going to bring Michael C. Trackman back onto the program to talk about Citizens United and the overturning of Roe v. Wade. That will take place next month when the Supreme Court reconvenes to begin its assiduous work to undermine the American democracy. Another thing that got set aside recently to talk about on the show was a piece from The Economist, which completely dovetails, I think, with our Previous quote from David Attenborough, anyone who believes in indefinite growth on a physically finite planet is either mad or an economist. To which we would add, and might be hired by Silicon Valley. Because the economist notes that big tech cannot get enough economic PhDs. Note of the magazine, for more than a decade, Facebook, now known as Meta, has awarded fellowships to promising graduate students working on cutting-edge research. The prize, which this year comes with up to two years' worth of university tuition and a $42,000 stipend, has gone to computer scientists, engineers, physicists, and statisticians. Now, it has gone to an economist. I was not expecting it, says Jaume Vivas Batista, the lucky recipient working on a PhD at MIT. In fact, Silicon Valley is increasingly turning to economics for insights into how to solve business problems, from pricing and product development, to strategy. Job placement data from 10 leading graduate programs in economics shows that tech firms hired one in seven newly minted PhDs in 2022, up from less than one in 20 in 2018. Amazon is the keenest recruiter. The e-emporium now has some 400 full-time economists on staff. Of course, in our opinion, that may finally slow down the juggernaut of Amazon's expansion. That is several times as many as a typical research university. Uber is another big employer. Last year, the ride-hailing firm hired a fifth of Harvard's graduating Ph.D. class. And no, Mr. Merlin, I presume they were not hired as drivers, but we'll have to look into that. You know, I just, just love the people like, you know, Uber and Lyft that uh, complained they were being treated unfairly by the California state legislature and had the most expensive, the most expensive ballot proposition in California history designed to overturn the regulations that made their workers actual employees. No, 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 they're independent contractors, said Uber and Lyft, and they managed to uh, spend enough money to bamboozle the public into believing it. What were we just saying about the super rich dominating our politics? Hmm. Anyway, the article points out that for big tech, economists offer skills that computer scientists and engineers often lack. They tend to have a good grasp of statistics, as well as a knack for understanding how incentives affect human behavior. Yeah, I imagine they do when they back up uh, giant corporations paying their CEOs hundreds of millions of dollars. That certainly incentivizes some people. Anyway, well, we'll have to see where all that leads. I know, in this program it seems like we're a bunch of Luddites sometimes bashing technology, and after all, technology does do wondrously wonderful things for all of us. This woman likes to point out, it allows people like me to have a radio program, and there's truth in that. On the other hand, you know, talking about things like influencers and and, uh, social addiction, we just feel the need to continuously point out that all is not rosy in the world of tech. Bay Area News Group recently had an article by Martha Ross asking about social addiction. Had an article about a San Jose 16-year-old spending three hours a day on social media to where it started to interfere with her schoolwork. She said she was able to reduce her social media time to 30 to 40 minutes a day only after removing Instagram and TikTok from her phone. Note that in her social addiction, she was seeking validation from people liking her posts and became caught up in viewing the endless loop of photos and videos that popped into her feeds based on her search history. And they noted it was rather disturbing that some posts made her think she could look better if she followed their advice on how to get thinner and develop rock-hard abs in just two weeks. In January of this year, The Economist published an article which I say because I just couldn't believe the headline. The headline was, Can you get hooked on video games? Huh, I don't know. Can you get hooked on cigarettes? Gee, it seems like a question to ponder, doesn't it? I mean, none of us know any people that are addicted to video games now, do we? The sub-headline to the piece said, Games Makers' latest business models have bolstered the case that you can. The Chinese government certainly thinks that video games are addicting. They are limiting their under-18-year-olds to one hour of gaming a day. I don't know how they enforce that, but I'm sure the Chinese have found a way. Last January, the World Health Organization lent support to the Chinese position. They issued an edition of the International Classification of Diseases, the ICD, which is a manual widely used by doctors and health insurance firms, and for the first time recognized an affliction that it called gaming disorder. Later in the article, they said that, you know, that a few players develop unhealthy relationships with their pastimes seems hard to argue with. Psychologists describe gamers who forego sleep, also offline relationships, and work. Rows with families are common. Many call themselves addicts and struggle to kick their habits. I don't understand it. These video games are clearly addicting. People with certain personality types are clearly going to get addicted, and yet we act like it's a mystery whether that's what's going on. If somebody was caught selling drugs to high school students, we would probably take a real dim view of their activity, and yet... These companies which are peddling their form of drugs to high school students are largely getting a pass. And what about that connection to all these people that are gamers, watching violent, blowing, you know, shooting people, videos hour after hour who go out and then commit mass murder? Just a coincidence, say some, but frankly here at Radio Products, we're not coincidence theorists. Tech needs to be held accountable. For things like this, something, something I read in The Economist while overseas. Yeah, I knew I'd have an edition waiting for me when I get home, but I wanted something to read in the airport right then, so I snagged one and saw this. Amazon bought iRobot, the company that makes the Roomba robot vacuum cleaner. The Roomba apparently collects more than dirt. It also collects data, which is this acquisition's real value to Amazon, Because Roomba maps the layout of a house and the furniture as it busily picks up dust, that information can be added to a user's shopping profile. Customers can opt out of the mapping system, I guess if you know how to do it, but I'm sure most don't. And (laughs) notes the article, questions about privacy have already been raised. Yeah, you know, for some reason, I'm just not sure I want Amazon having Roomba inform them of the layout on my house. I mean, what do you think, dear listener? Does that concern you? And here's a tech item we have to we have to chuckle over. Margie Murphy writing in Bloomberg notes that the world's most popular password manager says it was hacked. LastPass, a password manager used by more than 33 million people, said last week that a hacker stole its source code and other proprietary information about breaking into its system. The company doesn't believe Any passwords were taken as part of the breach. Alan Liska, an analyst at Cybersecurity Recorded Future, agreed that the stolen source code wasn't likely to yield access to password vaults, but the attack was nonetheless unnerving for a company that has long promoted the safety and security of its service, which automatically generates and stores hard-to-crack passwords on behalf of its users. And no, we've not been able to confirm the rumor that they were hacked because they use the word password for their password. And what about the story regarding Twitter? Daniel Howley writing in Yahoo Finance said that Elon Musk is now the least of Twitter's problems. The social media company is a security train wreck, according to its former security chief, Peter Zatko. An explosive whistleblower complaint filed to numerous Washington regulatory agencies recently. Zatko claimed half of Twitter's employees have access to sensitive user data, but the company wasn't even following the most basic levels of cybersecurity preparedness. Many workers rarely updated their mobile devices, while the company's servers ran on vulnerable and out-of-date software. This report may put Twitter in jeopardy with the Federal Trade Commission, which has already hammered the company over lack security back in 2011. Zatko also says Twitter executives hardly cared to know how many bots are actually on the platform, giving new credibility to Elon Musk's justification for backing out of his $44 billion agreement to take Twitter private. Writing about Twitter in Business Insider, Katie Canales said that it's poorly managed and has been for a while. Co-founder Jack Dorsey's reputation as a visionary was long ago tainted by reports painting him as an absent, uncommunicative, and indecisive leader. Dorsey hired Zatko in 2010 after a teen hacker hijacked the verified Twitter accounts of some of Twitter's highest profile users, including among them Barack Obama, Kim Kardashian, and yes, Elon Musk. So yeah, apparently like the uh, fake famous documentary, uh, Twitter has a problem with uh, too many bots faking that they're real people. In writing about some of the latest antics in Bloomberg Businessweek, Max Chafkin wrote that for all the talk about an end of an era in Silicon Valley, some things just don't change. The largest venture capital check that Andreessen Horowitz has ever written was addressed this week to a home rental startup called Flow. It isn't entirely clear what the company does or what Andreessen's $350 million investment will do for it but we do know a lot about its founders, which is Adam Newman, the co-founder of WeWork, the epically overvalued office space startup. Last week, Newman was seen walking barefoot around New York City after being fired as WeWork's CEO amid allegations of weed smuggling and self-dealing. For his next act, Newman has been buying thousands of apartments in Florida, Georgia, and Tennessee, which Flo will manage. Newman's WeWork original act was such a fiasco, there's even an Apple TV show about it. We crashed. But backing disgraceful founders seems to be something of a thing. Travis Kalanick, the Uber co-founder who was ousted after rule-breaking and sexism, has raised more than $1 billion for his virtual restaurant startup. Yeah, Mr. maybe we can later get a virtual meal at a virtual restaurant. Sure, it's on me. Yeah, I hear the virtual lentil soup is very good. Anyway, Silicon Valley's leaders have made some uh, noise about turning over new leafs after the tech lash against them for years, you know, favoring the toxic founders with an apparent propensity for grift, said Max Chafkin. Turns out that was just socially conscious sleight of hand. And let's talk about Facebook. Apparently, Facebook gave police access to messages between a mother and her teen daughter that led to their being charged with performing an illegal abortion with pills. Prosecutors in July charged Jessica Burgess, age 41, with three felonies and two misdemeanors, and her 17-year-old daughter Celeste with a felony and two misdemeanors. Abortion is illegal in Nebraska 20 weeks after fertilization, and a friend of Celeste told police she saw her take an abortion pill 23 weeks into her pregnancy. Authorities serve Facebook with warrants to access the mother and daughter's accounts, which showed Jessica messaging Celeste about, quote, what I ordered last month, unquote, and telling her to take two pills 24 hours apart. Celeste and Jessica allegedly buried the fetus. Both pled not guilty. Facebook said the police claimed they were investigating the burning and burial of a stillborn infant with no mention of abortions. Oh, that gets them off the hook. We mentioned on last week's show how it was, or I think it was last week's show, about how it was that um, Edward Snowden decided to do what he did after watching an interview with President Barack Obama where he assured the public that we need these programs and no, we're not listening to your cell phone conversations. We're not reading your emails. Snowden knew that both those statements were not true and then did what he did. Yours truly has been puzzling for some time over the degree to which they might be listening to random phone conversations, including my own, and was somewhat struck yesterday by an incident that I think I will share, even though I'm just still not quite sure what to make of it. For reasons that I will not go into, I was recently booking some flights. These involved four outgoing and four returning flights. After having a conversation with someone about moving one of those eight flights, I received in my email a statement from the airline in question about the flight being discussed in question, saying you're all set, but providing a way in which I could change it, which is what the conversation had been about, changing that flight. If that's a coincidence, it is a truly remarkable coincidence. And that's all I'm going to say. Personally, I don't think it was a coincidence, but I don't know what else to think about it or in particular do about it. Now, in addition to uh, the problems of getting hooked on video games or becoming addicted to social media, we have this basic problem of how it is that social media was able to aid the spread of disinformation. To a very substantial degree, we can hold Facebook and other social media companies accountable for Brexit, Boris Johnson, Donald Trump, and the notion that it was a crazy thing to take standard epidemiologic measures to rein in the spread of COVID. In yet another editorial in the Washington Post, it was noted that vaccine skepticism is like a deadly virus. It is killing people as it spreads across the U.S. and the world. Even before the coronavirus hit, the anti-vax movement had taken root here, fueled by a debunked paper that falsely linked vaccines with autism in children. During the pandemic, anti-science cranks and far-right libertarians served up a dangerous cocktail of doubt, suspicion, and fear about vaccines, insisting that mandates designed to fight a deadly infectious disease violated their, quote, medical freedom, unquote. Today, many Americans, particularly Republicans, exhibit a general hostility towards science and medical expertise. While 89% of Democrats trusted the CDC, Just 41% of Republicans do. Noted the Post, that mistrust kills. Scientists estimate that 200,000 American lives could have been saved if everyone eligible for the COVID vaccine had gotten it, to which I would hasten to add that that is a low number, focusing only on those who got the vaccine. If you add in all the people who got themselves exposed to the virus because they weren't masking, they weren't social distancing, they weren't restricting their motion, Uh, about town. If you factor that in, it's at least double that, which puts the number of people killed unnecessarily in the COVID epidemic more than that who were killed in World War II. We've talked about this before. But noted the post, the death toll will only grow as disinformation spreads and people reject other vaccines. In Florida, (laughs) for example, At least three candidates running for seats on the nine-member board that controls Sarasota Memorial Hospital are vaccine skeptics. The truth, notes the Post, is that vaccines are proved to be safe and effective, and that means freedom from death and suffering. True enough, but in August, the first confirmed U.S. polio case in nearly a decade prompted New York's health commissioner, Dr. Mary Bissett, to warn last week that there may be hundreds of other people infected. In August, an unvaccinated adult in Rockland County, north of New York City, was hospitalized after suffering paralysis. Wastewater samples from Rockland and neighboring Orange County revealed seven positive cases, suggesting the virus is spreading within a local community, where just 60% of two-year-olds have received the polio vaccine. That compares with a state rate of 80%. Genetic tracing suggested the virus entered entered Rockland County via someone who recently taken an oral polio vaccine, most likely abroad. We should note that the oral polio vaccine was replaced in America with the shots used to treat polio. That is because the shots involved killed vaccine, whereas the oral polio involved weakened vaccine, and in a certain small number of cases, the weakened virus can back mutate and again become more virulent. Still, that's a very rare event, a a one-in-a-million event. But if you really want to stop polio or any other disease, you have to have people immunized against it in, in sufficient numbers. This New York outbreak was the first of this incurable disease in more than 40 years. Back in 1955, the oral polio vaccine, I think in that case referring to the Sabin or injectable type, was 99% effective at preventing paralytic polio. But now, notes Rolling Stone, the virus is re-emerging thanks to the insidious effect of vaccine disinformation and the backlash to COVID restrictions. Writing in CNN.com, it was noted that in 1952 alone, Polio paralyzed 21,000 people in America, most of them children, and it killed 3,000. Parents were afraid to let their children play outdoors for fear they'd wind up in an iron lung. As vaccine distrust grows worldwide, the immunity wall past generations have built up is being chipped away. Globally, vaccination against polio, measles, and other childhood diseases have fallen from 86% in 2019 to 81% in 2021, with 80% considered the threshold of herd immunity. Polio should have been relegated to the pages of our history books. Note CNN. But of course, that's not the case. There, There was some talk years ago, fairly recently, about polio possibly being the second disease eliminated from planet Earth. Smallpox being so far the only success that medical science can hold up. And speaking of public health failures, there's monkeypox. At least some of the problem in dealing with monkeypox can be traced to public relations. Kelsey Piper, writing in Vox, said some of the most glaring errors have been made in communications. Globally, 98% of the cases are among gay or bisexual men. The phrase that is thrown out, men who have sex with men, who I guess are, are not alleged to be gay or bisexual. At any rate, health officials are wary of labeling monkeypox a gay disease. To avoid that stigma, they have emphasized that it can strike anyone, which technically is true, but that they're saying that instead of warning that sexually active gay men, that their risk is highly elevated. At any rate, some health officials are fearing that monkeypox is destined to become entrenched in the population and that while it won't spread as widely as covid It may make inroads into the general population. At least five children and one pregnant woman in the U.S. have been infected through contact, skin contact with infected men. And, of course, there's the concern that the virus could take root among domestic animals, which could spread it back to humans. Yeah, this is kind of an echo of the AIDS era. There's a debate here whether monkeypox should be spoken of as primarily a sexually transmitted disease, which certainly seems to be the case. But that's a thorny subject and has sparked debate over how awareness efforts should be targeted. Technically, technically, anyone who has skin-to-skin contact with an infected person could get monkeypox. And some health officials believe it's important to stress that point and not label monkeypox as a gay disease. Others say public health officials afraid of stigmatizing gay men have been too timid about emphasizing that they're almost exclusively the ones getting infected. Will Nutland, founder of two British health groups for gay and bisexual men, said pretending that's not the case doesn't help any of us. Anyway, I'm down to about two minutes left, and I, and I haven't told enough stories about Africa and travel. I guess we'll just have to put that off and spread it out over the next couple shows, which shouldn't be a problem. Instead, I'm going to go out with Space Oddities, the article I made allusion to earlier, a piece by Stuart Clark writing in New Scientist magazine, talking about the Vera C. Rubin Observatory in Chile, which is set to open next year. It's going to start studying the universe by rapidly scanning the entire sky quickly again and again and again. This should change how it is we see the universe, especially our view of some mysterious objects that are pulsing, blipping, or otherwise changing in unexpected ways. Traditionally, telescopes that uh, scan the entire sky, known as all-sky surveys, have taken months or years to do it. Now the Rubin Telescope will take just a matter of days. Never before have astronomers been able to compare almost day-to-day appearances of so many celestial objects. There's a few mysterious ones they're especially interested in. One is the fast blue optical transients, FBOTs, which are pulses of fast blue light. They've only seen five of them so far. They're not sure what the hell's going on. Then there's kilonova, an explosion with about one one one-hundredth or to a tenth the energy of a typical supernova. Astronomers know of only a handful of examples of these. They're thought to be a collision between perhaps a neutron star, maybe a neutron star and a black hole. They should be relatively common, astronomers think, but they've largely flown under the radar because they fade so quickly. Curiously, one thing they may be looking for out there is a Dyson structure. Back in 1960, physicist Freeman Dyson postulated that an extraterrestrial civilization might be able to harness a a substantial portion of the energy being emitted by its local star by building a giant structure to capture that energy. Is that former Radio Parallax guest Freeman Dyson? Well, yes, it is. Yes, in case you missed our one-hour scintillating interview, we thought, with physicist Freeman Dyson. We suggest you go to radioparallax.com and see if you can pull it out of our archives. I'm not sure which show it was, but just type in Dyson under search. Anyway, I think it's pretty much a long shot they're going to find a Dyson structure out there in deep space, but who the hell knows? Back in 1960, astronomer Jocelyn Bell was searching the night sky for quasars, when they spotted a pulsating radio signal that was so regular that it didn't seem to have a natural source. Along with her supervisor, Anthony Hewish, she half-jokingly dubbed it LGM-1, short for Little Green Men. Well, they eventually figured out that these signals were not coming from Little Green Men, but from a natural phenomenon. But uh, if they see some dipping and changing of starlight in a certain pattern, who knows? Maybe it'll be Little Green Men for real. Which I think is going di- to dictate our outro music for this program which was produced by Edward McMillan, who himself has a certain interest in space oddities. Anyway, I'm Douglas Everett. This has been Radio Parallax. If uh, some of our new listeners are people I went to high school with and or traveled with to Africa, well, uh, again, welcome aboard, folks. We're going to have some fun in the weeks to come. We're going to work you into this. I promise. See you then.